0: Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Anud Winterstein, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to thank you for joining us today for now more than ever implementing the microphenolate Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy in Clinical Practice. The CME activity is supported by an educational grant from the Mycophenolate Rams Group, a consortium of more than 20 companies that provide branded and generic forms of microphenolate. CME Outfitters is a joint accreditation provider and develops and certifies continuing education activities for the team, by the team, including our program today. Don't forget to follow follow us on, on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. Um, Username is at CME Outfitters uh, for upcoming CME or CE opportunities, news and more, and there will also be a response to relevant posts throughout this session today. Again, I'm Dr. Anu Winterstein. I am a distinguished professor in pharmaceutical outcomes and policy and epidemiology at the University of Florida. I'm also director of a center called the Center for Drug Evaluation and Safety. And that tells you a little bit what I'm doing. I'm a pharmacoepidemiologist by training. My research focus is on medication safety, um, both uh, to evaluate drug safety issues in, in large populations, as well as to evaluate um, regulatory policy and activities that try to ensure drug safety, including REMS. And I'll tell you a little bit more about this today um, as we go through the program. I'm very pleased to be joined by a superb panel who I'll ask to introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Sintron.
1: Hello to our audience. I'm Dr. Dima Sintron. I'm a combined adult and pediatric dermatology fellow at Duke University with both a clinical and research interest in reproductive health within rheumatology. It is a pleasure to be here.
2: Dr. Kim? And I'm Dr. Mia Kim, a clinical pharmacist specialist at Center for Advanced Heart Disease at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I work with inpatient and outpatient cardiac transplant patients and follow them throughout their journey pre- and post-transplant.
0: Thank you both. Now to get us started, I'd like to provide a brief introduction and in history of the mycophenolate rems just to get us going on the topic. Um, so a little bit history on, on mycophenolate. We all know this was approved in the last millennium, and in the early 2000s, there was emerging evidence of mycophenolate teratogenicity. Mainly focused on case series reports of cases of very characteristic and recurrent pattern of malformations, this resulted in early regulatory action in 2007 with a boxed warning that the FDA issued, and then the requirement for a medication guide in 2008. In parallel to this. Um, was also some new regulatory effort to look at drug safety, um, the evidence generation as well as activities to ensure um, drug safety in the public, um, all really resulting in the FDA Amendment Act, so-called fda which was um, uh, occurring in 2007, which included um, the requirements for REMS, so the activity for FDA to be able to uh, require sponsors to put in REMS in place to ensure that the benefit of a medication outweighs the risk. And that is really a very important concept because essentially what it means is that the benefit of a medication might might be incredibly important, but if certain safe use behaviors are not in place, then the risk is so dramatic that it outweighs the benefit of the medication. So in other, in other words, um, if I cannot ensure that these safe-use behaviors are in place, and that is basically the focus of a REMS, then the medication essentially shouldn't be on the market. That's, that's the thinking of, of a REMS process. So this REMS was then introduced in 2012, so, so fairly late. Um, so we had several years of activity um, of, and, and clinical practice where the REMS was not in place in 2012, it was put in place. And it focuses on very specific state-use behaviors, uh, again, to ensure that we uh, prevent prenatal exposure to mycophenolate. Um, So the focus is to mitigate the risk of embryo-fetal toxicity associated with the use of mycophenolate by educating healthcare providers on increased risk of first trimester pregnancy losses and congenital malformations, The need to counsel patients of reproductive potential on the importance of pregnancy prevention and pregnancy planning and the need to report pregnancies to the mycophenolate pregnancy registry and we'll talk about all of those specific activities uh, a little more. Um, and then on the other side, into the need to inform patients of reproductive potential who are prescribed mycophenolate about an increased risk of miscarriage and birth defects and the importance of pregnancy prevention and planning. So essentially, this REMS is directed on to two audiences, the providers as well as the patients. Um, Here's a screenshot of the uh, microphenolate uh, REMS homepage. Um, this has, is a great resource. It has, it has a lot of information that is uh, patient directed that you might want to consider looking at. The URL is posted um, at the bottom of these slides, and the slides will be available to you uh, for review as well. So why are we still talking about this? Remember, this REMS has been introduced more than 10 years ago. At some point, one could assume that everybody knows what the issues are. Um, But there is evidence that the microphenolate REMS is suboptimal at best in preventing prenatal exposure. And I'll show you a little bit more data on this as well. Um, and then in, in in addition to this, we also have had a lot of changes with regard to abortion laws in this country, which now leave in many states limited options when accidental prenatal exposure occurs. Um, those states that have absolute or six weeks abortion bans leave limited opportunity to consider pregnancy termination if desired, um, because this is just too early typically to even identify that prenatal exposure occurred. Um, And the potential for malformations is generally not recognized as an exception to strict abortion laws, so these are typically not exceptions that uh, can be considered, and with this, um, we may find our patients uh, being in really very difficult situations if we don't plan ahead and prevent prenatal exposure. Uh, so for the discussion today, we really have uh, several goals, um, a lot in one hour, to review the risk of pregnancy loss and congenital malformations associated with mycophenolate, how to educate persons of reproductive potential about this risk, the provider's role in educating patients on pregnancy prevention and planning, alternative. we will, we will reveal alternative immunosuppressants with lesser embryo fetal toxicity in cases where we may need to consider this, importance of reporting to the mycophenolate pregnancy registry, and the importance of encouraging patients to participate in the registry. Um, so now get started. Um, I'd like to um, get us um, moving on to um, Dr. Uh, Mia Kim. Um, let's get a transplantation perspective on working with mycophenolate. Dr. Kim?
2: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Winterstein. This part of the program will address our first learning objective, identify the pregnancy and fetal risks related to mycophenolate use. Uh, First, let's get our audience involved. What percentage of infants born to a mother exposed to mycophenolate during pregnancy are born with congenital abnormalities? Is it A, um, about 10 to 15 percent? B, about 20 to 25%. C, approximately 45 to 50%. D, more than 50%. Or E, you're not sure. Go ahead and register your answer now. Let's see. So, most of you say you're not sure, but those uh, among those who answered got it right. Um, And the correct answer is B 20 to 25%. And we'll learn more about that in a moment. So, there are two different mycophenolate products available in the market. One is called mycophenylic mofetil, which is a product of active ingredient mycophenolic acid, or MPA. It is available at both IV and PO formulations, and it has received its first FDA approval for its use in preventing um, organ rejections in kidney transplant recipients in 1995 and um, has expanded its uh, indications further to heart and liver transplants thereafter. It is reasonably well-tolerated, but uh, often causes GI side effects such as diarrhea. So another company came out with a new product, delayed release, mycophenolic acid sodium, in an attempt to alleviate some of these GI intolerance issues. But um, unfortunately, it seems that there is no really clear data um, that if it has improved the GI intolerance as as compared to mycophenolimofetil or not. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense as um, that it being an anti-coded formulation um, that and then mycophenolate GI pro- problem usually happens in the more distal area of GI system, it makes sense that why it did not really improve the tolerability. And, um, and my, uh, mycophenolic acid sodium, the delayed version, has received its FDA approval to use in kidney transplant in 2004. So these mycophenolate products really became the anti-metabolites of choice Uh, for most U.S. transplant centers due to its superior efficacy to other antimetabolites like azathioprine in terms of preventing uh, rejections. This really means that not a small number of people use this medication every day and are subject to an exposure to its potential side effects. So per OPTN report, um, they say almost 15,000 adult females received solid organ transplants last year, and more than 90 percent of these patients have started uh, receiving MPA products chronically as one of their maintenance immunosuppressive agents. With its proven efficacy and favorable toxicity profile, MPA products were trialed and adopted to treat several other conditions as well, including other solid organ transplants like lung, pancreas, or small bowel, um, bowel transplants. Um, and graft-versus-host disease following bone marrow transplantation. It is also uh, an option for treating rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, and other autoimmune diseases as well. So as they gain the popularity in treating these various inflammatory diseases, more and more people are um, potentially exposed to the MPA's pregnancy risk. MPA uh, exerts its immunosuppressive effects by inhibiting an enzyme called IMPDH, you know, inosine 5-monophosphate dehydrogenase, which is an, an enzyme involved in the only step of de novo synthesis of guanine. And organ rejection is mediated by lymphocytes via their activation and proliferation, and prol- proliferation requires DNA synthesis. And so inhibiting the formulation of its building block, which is DNA-based guanine in this case, can prevent organ rejections. So the first case report of human teraginacity of MPA was described in 2001. A child was born with hypoplastic nails and shortened fingers to a mother who had been exposed to mycophenolate. But this was just the um, tip of the ice, uh, iceberg as many other subsequent rep, uh, reports followed thereafter. So they came out describing a range of um, congenital malformations in children, um, including ear malformation with or without hearing losses, and cleft palate, and the defects in the heart esophagus, and eyes, limbs, and kidneys, and also pregnancy, pregnancy loss was frequent as well. So, the 2006 NTPR data, National Transplantation Pregnancy Registry um, data, came out reporting mind-blowingly high rate of adverse um, pregnancy outcomes in mpa exposed pregnancies. Out of 33 MPA-exposed pregnancies reported in 24 female transplant patients, 45 percent of of them had spontaneous abortions. And 22 percent of the remaining life-born infants had congenital malformations. Additionally, uh, post-marketing data of 77 female patients exposed to MPA during pregnancy between 1995 and 2007 also reported high rate of spontaneous abortions and congenital malformation. Both of these studies suggested the rate of miscarriage during the first trimester associated with the use of MPA in pregnancy ranges uh, up to 30 to 40% and 20 to 25% for congenital malformation among live born infants. This rate of aberrant fetal outcomes is overwhelming when considering that the overall rate of congenital malformation previously reported in the offspring of transplant patients who are on different immunosuppressive agents was only 4 to 5%, which appears sort of comparable to. 3 percent in the general U.S. population. So given this risk of MPA use during pregnancy, there were a lot of efforts made by the FDA to reduce the risk, as Dr. Winterstein uh, mentioned earlier. FDA updated the labeling of MPA products to include this boxed warning shown on the slide regarding embryo fetal toxicity related to their use in female in 2007 and in 2008 uh, medication guide. Uh, is now required to be distributed to patients by their pharmacies. And uh, in the same year, the FDA also required all the manufacturer uh, of the MPA products to to come up with some REMS proposals. And uh, following the review of those proposals, a single shared REMS system for all MPA products was approved in 2012. So, uh, this single RAMS program focuses on educating patients of reproductive potential and providers on the embryo fetal risk of MPA and need for, um, for the proper um, prevention and pre, uh, planning of pregnancy while using MPA. Uh, additionally, patients are encouraged to report their MPA-exposed pregnancies, if there's any, to a voluntary uh, registry called Mycophenolate Pregnancy Registry, which uh, was created as a part of the REMS program. At the early stage of MPA, REMS um, was not clear who were considered persons of childbearing potential, but not uh so at the time, it created a lot of confusion among the practitioners, but now they are defined as uh, um, persons who have entered puberty, have a uterus and ovaries, and have not passed through menopause. Pregnancy tests should be performed immediately before starting mycophenolate as well, um, which may be tricky to complete for transplant patients as the first dose of uh, mycophenolate products usually given in the OR, and um, remembering to order a pregnancy test in the midst of chaos of donor call and prepping for the transplant surgery could be uh, challenging. And another uh, test in 8 to 10 days uh, should be ordered to confirm the results. Persons of reprodu- uh, reproductive uh, potential must be counseled regarding pregnancy prevention and planning, and it will be best if they can avoid NPA products altogether, even before they're thinking about growing a family. However, uh, at least for solid organ transplant recipients, this is really not realistic. Fortunately, um, for those patients who are already on uh, MPA prior to pregnancy planning and starting to thinking about starting a family, uh, many cases report, um, case reports suggest um, discontinuation of the drug prior to conception was associated with a significantly higher rate of live birth and lower rates of birth defects. So again, um, the rate of miscarriages in pregnancies with MPA exposure was as high as 48% in this NTPR report, and the rate of miscarriages um, dropped to 22% in pregnancies where MPA was discontinued at least six weeks before conception, which is um, close to the rate of miscarriages in general U.S. population of 15 to 20%. Sorry about that. Sure. So, uh, when the pregnancy is planned and MPA is discontinued ahead of time, the chances of a negative pregnancy outcomes can be reduced. This really stressed the uh, importance of planned pregnancy and proper contraception in persons of reproductive uh, potential during MPA use and for another six weeks. Um, at least six weeks following discontinuation of the drug to prevent any unplanned pregnancies. Uh, There are different options for contraceptions, and Dr. Sintram will uh, will go over them later. But I want to point out that the mycophenolate may decrease the uh, efficacy of hormonal contraceptives. Although the mechanism of this uh, interaction has not been fully elucidated, um, when the hormonal contraceptives are used uh, alone, it may not be enough for the pre- uh, pregnancy prevention. And another method, um, such as barrier methods, should be used at the same time. So we have talked about embri- uh, embryo risks in females. But what about the exposure uh, to the MPA in a non-gestational um, parent? So, fortunately, there have been no human or animal data that uh, suggest the negative pregnancy outcomes or other fetal risks yet when a man using MPA fathers a child. However, the prescribing information for MPA products still recommends that sexually active men and their female partners use effective contraceptive methods while the male patients receiving an MPA product and for another ninety days post treatment. So uh what are the, um, safer alternatives to the MPA products? The decision whether to uh, replace the mycophenolate products with another agent or even how to do it should be tailored to the specific patient uh, cases after assessing their risks of rejections, infections, and tolerability uh, of the potential adverse effects. uh, But most of the other immunosuppressants used in solid organ transplant have limited data in humans. Although there is no consensus to switch MPA to azathioprine while planning for pregnancy in transplant patients, this has been often done in practice historically, as long as the patient is not at a high risk of rejections given its inferiority in preventing rejections. Um, although congenital malformation occurred in rodents exposed to the drug in the ureus, Azathioprine has not been clearly identified as a human teratogen. Our um, Dr. Winterstein's group here had conducted a study using research databases and found that exposure to MPA during early pregnancy uh, was associated with a twofold increase in pregnancy loss as compared to the pregnancy exposed to azathioprine. So this really supports. Um, the strategies of switching MPA to azathioprine in regard to uh, pregnancy outcome. For the label indications, there is even a wider variety of alternatives available that can be used in patients preparing for pregnancy. As mycophenolate product is not the drug of choice, everybody should be on for those indications, unlike organ transplant recipients. Um, but the discussion of those alternatives is beyond the scope of the presentations here. Thank you, Dr. Kim.
0: We have one question here that might be good to answer right now, and that is how long does a typical patient of childbearing age need to stay on microphenolate with regard to organ transplantation?
2: Uh, what the, do we usually use a three-drug regimen for the uh, maintenance immunosuppressive agents. As long as they tolerate them, they actually use them forever. Life.
1: Thank you. Sure. And indeed, that is our next segment now. Uh, No
0: time to lose, a call to action because we are talking about a drug that um, persons of childbearing age will will continue to use for, for quite a while. And Dr. Sintron will talk about that a little bit more as well. Um, but before we go there, this segment will address our second learning objective: why and how to counsel patients of reproductive potential on pregnancy prevention and/or planning during mycophenolate treatment. But first, here's another audience response question. Which of the following is a positive impact of the microphenolate REMS to date? Is it a a decreased microphenolate initiation during pregnancy? B improved contraception during microphenolate therapy. C. Decreased microphenolate initiation during pregnancy and improved contraception. D. Nearly 90% participation in the microphenolate REMS pregnancy registry. E. You're just not sure. Go ahead and register your answer now.
2: All right, and the correct answer is A, decreased
0: microphenolate initiation during pregnancy, um, a little bit different from what most people thought, and I'll show you a little bit more data on this um, right now. So let's learn about what is going well and what, need, what, being, what needs more work in terms of the microphenolate rems. We have done a good amount of work to describe the status quo of prenatal exposure to teratogenic medications in the US and the results are not that great. Uh, What I'm sharing here is a publication that we uh, did not too long ago in AJOC, the American Journal of um, Obstetrics and Gynecology um, that looked at the risk for prenatal exposure to medications with known teratogenic risk and there's more than about 140 of those. So although FIDA, the FDA Amendment Act, has resulted in increased regulatory efforts, only 10 out of those 140 medications with known teratogenic risk currently have a REMS. For the remainder, we essentially rely on warnings in the package insert, um, which people may read or not. And so the result is a fairly high exposure risk. About one in 16 pregnancies is exposed to medications with known or potential teratogenicity. And as I said, very few have a REMS program. So now looking at the, at the mycophenolate rems, um, you may recall that um, the microphenolate rems was introduced reasonably late after teratogenicity was already known. And it was preceded by the requirement for a medication guide. So essentially an additional piece of paper that a pharmacy would hand out to a, to a person who would uh, fill the prescription for mycophenolate, along with the normal uh, with the usual information that is handed out. So that gave us the opportunity to, to look at prenatal exposure risk uh, to, uh, during two time periods, the medication guide period, where teratogenicity was known, but the REMS was not in place, and then the REMS period where teratogenicity was also known to providers, um, but we had the REMS program in place. So we used market scan data. This is a national sample of privately insured patients. Uh, we looked at persons of reproductive potential, uh, ages 15 to 44, who filled at least one prescription for all microphenolate. And the unit of analysis was basically a microphenolate treatment episode, so the duration during which a person would use microphenolate, and as Dr. Kim already pointed out, oftentimes that's reasonably long. And we had a look-back period of six months to really have new initiations of microphénolate that we then followed forward and we looked at two things one was um, the rollout of pregnancy at treatment initiation so essentially we wanted to see that when microphenolate is initiated is pregnancy already happening so in what proportion of microphenolate initiations overlap with an an existing pregnancy and then secondly we looked at during a treatment episode of microphenolate how many persons of childbearing uh, childbearing potential conceive during treatment? So the way we were looking at this was the first one, the initiation um, during pregnancy, would be really something the provider would have under control, or it is under control of the provider, right? Because I can check for pregnancy before I, I write a prescription for microphenolate. Um, whereas the other portion, conception during microphenolate use, is obviously a really a, a safe use behavior of of a person who is using microphenolate. but of course there's also a provider activity here, which, which um, is really the, the pregnancy prevention and contraception discussion that needs to happen. So here are all the results. Um, so if we are looking at the proportion of pregnancy at microphenolate initiation during the MedGuide period, um, we had Four pregnancies per thousand initiation, and during the REMS period, we had 1.7 per thousand initiation. So that is um, a reduction in more than half. So the microphenolate REMS was successful in preventing that mycophenolate gets initiated during pregnancy. Not perfect, but definitely a drop. Um, which tells us that providers were more aware that pregnancy needs to be considered and tested. However, When we are looking at the rate of conception during microphenolate treatment, we basically see no change whatsoever. So we had during the medication guide period, 12.9 pregnancies per thousand user years, um, and that dropped to 12.5 with a rate ratio of 0.97, so there really is not a whole lot. So the REMS did decrease microphenolate initiation during pregnancy, um, but contraception during use did not improve. So why does this happen? Um, I wish I I could tell you. Um, We haven't really drilled down much more, and the mitophenolate registry hasn't really been accessible to me to look at this further. Um, But here are some data from the isotretinoin REMS and the registry that is required for patients who are using isotretinoin. On the left hand side, we have um, from the um, registry reports um, what the reason for pregnancy was, and these are provider reports. um, And it looks at different years when the isotretinoin REMS was in place. Um, And what we see here is that contraceptive failure is a fairly high frequent reason, um, although this is dropping. And of course, with the adoption of more LARCs, long-acting hormonal contraceptives, Hopefully that is not too much of a concern anymore, but it still makes a good bulk. But then, more important did not use two birth control methods that is a very large proportion of um, persons where this is the reason, and then unsuccessful at abstinence so basically no no contraceptive use because uh, there was no sexual activity during the time period but then it certainly happened. Um, and then on the bottom, we have another big chunk, which is unknown, uh, which basically tells us that it was unclear why this happened or providers really didn't know. So all of this evolves around one theme, which is contraception just didn't work um, for one reason or the other. On the right hand side, um, we have some data that we um, did also that we also conducted uh, at the uh, at the anti-isotrity new environments. We looked at age differences. And so the isotretinoin rems is is successful in decreasing conception during use. These are the numbers that you would see here. This was compared against other acne medications. Um, But if you're looking at a breakdown uh, by age, we see that the age extremes, teenagers as well as older women in their 40s had lesser reduction of of, uh, contraception then ages in the middle, so essentially what that means is that um, the REMS works better for, for women in their 20s and their 30s than it works for teenagers and for older women, which is also the time period when unintended pregnancies occur more commonly. So we see that there are really some things that we can still improve um, and that we need to focus on if we want to do a good job here. So although treatment initiation during pregnancy has decreased, it still occurs. As healthcare providers, we need to aim to be better than a medication guide in preventing pregnancy during microphenolate use. Um, That is the big challenge that I would like to pose to everybody here. And we know some mechanisms of women's failure, but need to learn more about who is at risk and should be targeted with enhanced efforts to prevent pregnancy. So, for example, who needs reminders uh, more frequently to ensure that she remembers that pregnancy prevention is really important. Um, and now we will move on to Dr. Sintron to talk about practical ways to bridge the practice gaps we have just discussed. Dr. Sintron?
1: Dr. Rinder and Dr. Kim, thank you for such a great review. Let me this up. There we go. Next slide. Great. This um, section will be the last section and we're going to talk through our final objective. Next slide. Which is monitoring and reporting relevant pregnancies to the Michael Fennelly Pregnancy Registry. Here is our final audience response question. What percent of pregnancies are unplanned? Do you think it's 18 percent, 25 percent, 40 percent, or you're just not sure. Go ahead and register your answer now. Great. And the correct answer is 40%. This highlights the ongoing need for pregnancy planning and contraception counseling. Next slide. Our goal through the next slide is to provide guidance and content on contraception that better prepares you to have the MREMS conversation with your patients. We will then go through a few clinical scenarios and talk about examples on how to incorporate MREMS into your clinical workflow or documentation. Next slide. As stated, of pregnancies are unplanned, which is a bigger concern when we think among women who are on a teratogenic medication like mycophenolate. We need to discuss MRAMs to prevent this outcome, but we acknowledge it is hard to implement in clinical practice. There are time constraints. We have busy clinics. We have packed encounters with a lot of information to discuss with our patients. We have concerns about our patient perceptions. Do they want to talk about contraception? Do they want to talk about pregnancy? And sometimes our level of comfort when it comes to having the conversation on contraception and pregnancy is not ideal or uh, at at our best. Next slide. Yet it is essential that we overcome those limitations. And we're going to start here with some strategies to best implement MREMS. Address reproductive goals with your patients early, ideally prior to starting mycophenolate. Know if they're sexually active with male, female partners, or both. Are they using contraception? And does your patient want to become pregnant? Do this in a supportive, non-judgmental environment. We're here to support our patients' decisions. Invest the time on contraception knowledge, and we hope to summarize a lot of that information on the next slides, so you feel more comfortable when it comes to the contraception conversation. And finally, consider incorporating MRMs into your clinical notes or daily workflow. Next slide. AMRAMS recommends we counsel persons of reproductive potential. That includes patients from puberty all the way to menopause which is on an average at the age of 50, excluding those with premature ovarian failure, total hysterectomy, and or oophorectomy. While on mycophenolate, patients should be on contraception at the start of treatment, during treatment, and at least six weeks after ending the medication. During that time, Despite being a contraception, we need to do pregnancy screening at the start of the microphenolate. Ideally, eight to 10 days after we start the medication, there's always that risk of an initial false negative, and then at every follow-up encounter. Next slide. Here is the MREMS contraception guide. I thought it would be a nice idea if we go through it like I would with a patient. So patient X, we have discussed the risk of pregnancy. While on mycophenolate and the potential fetal anomalies, now let's talk about how to have you an adequate contraception. There are three options. Each option has a list of different contraceptive methods. Option one includes the most effective contraceptive and intrauterine device. If you are on this medication, there will be 90% effectiveness in preventing pregnancy. If you desire to not have any kids, it also includes permanent tubal sterilization and vasectomy. If you do not wish to choose an IUD, we would need to consider a combination of option two and option three. So option two includes hormone contraceptives, which I would favor the progesterone implant, next one on, as the efficacy is close to the intrauterine device, but also the progesterone injection, the Deprovera shots every 12 weeks. One of these, we would have to combine with a barrier method, most commonly a condom. So kind of going through the contraception discussion guide, there are ways to do it quickly to do it efficiently um, and kind of going through what the MRMS truly recommends. After you go through all these options, it is a shared decision process with our patients based on cost, compliance with medication, and their expected date of pregnancy. Next slide. I then followed its discussion with emergency contraception discussions. Especially if you have those patients that choose combination two plus three, just because of the known less effectiveness of that choice. First and most importantly, clarify to your patient that this is not an abortion pill. It blocks ovulation, it impacts the uterus lining, but is not in any way abortive um, to a pregnancy. There are three options you can consider and offer to your patient. Plan B, that's an over-the-counter progesterone that can be used up to three days after the sexual encounter. But be mindful of patients who are over 70 kilograms or over 165 pounds, that it is not as effective. In those patients, you might want to recommend ELLA, a progesterone receptor modulator that can be used up to five days after the sexual encounter. This can be prescribed by any healthcare provider. Finally, that third option is placement of a copper intrauterine device. It is 100% effective. It can be used for women of any weight, but it does require a referral to a gynecologist or a provider who's trained in intrauterine device placement. Perfect, next slide. With all that knowledge, let's go through some clinical scenarios together. This is scenario number one. You're about to start a patient on mycophenolate. And when you do a little bit more diving into kind of the reproductive goals, the patient is just not interested in getting pregnant anytime soon. This is kind of the ideal scenario. You can truly have a thorough conversation of MREMs with this patient. You can discuss contraception options and really push for that long-term contraception, that intrauterine device in option one. Be mindful though, that plans do change. Therefore, we address pregnancy goals on follow-up appointments with these patients. Next slide. Let's go through scenario number two. You're going to start mycophenolate, but your patient wants to get pregnant or is unsure about getting pregnant in the near future. These patients, you truly need to take a pause. You need to explore their reproductive goals in more depth. And really think of Are they high-risk? Are they sexually active? Have they had prior abortions or miscarriages? And I would strongly consider choosing a pregnancy-compatible drug and not necessarily mycophenolate. If you are going to start mycophenolate, these are the high-risk subgroups that you want to more frequently counsel on mREMs, and you do not want to miss doing that pregnancy screening. Next slide. Scenario number three, you have a patient who is on mycophenolate. When comes to your appointment and shares that they want to become pregnant soon. Listen and embrace. Don't try to convince your patients against this personal decision. We are here to support our patients. Assume that if they want to become pregnant, they're actively trying to get pregnant. Set a pregnancy goal. In the meantime, transition to a pregnancy compatible drug. And we'll talk some more about how to approach a transition to a drug, a pregnancy compatible drug, in the next slide. Ideally, birth control should continue for six weeks after stopping the mycophenolate. And at this stage, refer patients for preconception counseling. Next slide. Like we talked about, transition to a pregnancy-compatible drug is not an easy task. We truly, we don't have any guidelines on how to transition from mycophenolate to a pregnancy-compatible drug. Most of our current decisions are based on clinical practice, and that is what I'm gonna share today. Therefore, discuss the risks versus benefits of transitioning to another medication and understand that every patient is different and that in certain situations, the maternal benefits may outweigh the risk of the fetus. One of the most common medications we transition to is Imran or Esafiapirin. And there are three ways we can do the transition. You either quickly decrease the mycophenolate and increase the Imran. You either slowly decrease the mycophenolate dose and increase the Imran dose or would you do a sudden switch? This decision will truly depend on the dosing that your patient is on, their level of disease activity, their most recent disease flare. So it will be a shared decision process and kind of very patient oriented. Next slide. And then our final scenario, which I think is the most feared scenario is having a patient on mycophenolate and finding out that your patient is pregnant either through your pregnancy screening or a call from your patient kind of sharing that they're pregnant. Although this is not the ideal scenario, we do have to be proactive and we have to act with these patients. Stop the mycophenolate as soon as possible. Transition the the patient to a pregnancy-compatible drug, and in this scenario, you would favor doing a sudden switch to a drug that is compatible to pregnancy. Refer to preconception counseling and high-risk obstetrical care, and make sure to report this pregnancy to the mycophenolate pregnancy registry. Next slide. Finally, find ways to include MRMs into your workflow. I have a few examples. Um, First, uh, having nurses in your team triage and identify persons of reproductive potential who are mycophenolate. They can add a pregnancy test to your orders and really help with keeping up with the MRMs pregnancy screening. You could also add MRMs to your notes. I've included here a dot phrase that uh, includes kind of that MRMs initial counseling. We've also have added here a Duke an Electronic Health Record reminder of when MRAMs was discussed and a reminder that we need to do pregnancy screening on every visit. Ultimately, you will find the option that best works for you. Thank you, Dr.
0: Sintron. There is one question that directly relates to this that I'd like to read to you. How much time as a clinician does participating in the pregnancy prevention program take? Are nurses or administrators often involved? I think you touched on this already a little bit, but maybe you want to elaborate.
1: It truly depends on how high of a risk that patient is. There will be different patient encounters if you're having a young female patient who is sexually active, who has been questioning contraception, those are patients where you, it is worth spending that additional time. Um, if patients have adequate contraception, they're not sexually active, doing prevention screening through MRAMs is just a faster process because the risk of becoming pregnant is lower. So ideally, it should be really tailored to the risk of your patient being pregnant while on mycophenolate. Um, but there are definitely ways to be efficient. There are ways to do it quickly so that your clinical workflow is not affected and you're able to kind of continue with your, the rest of your patient encounters.
0: Thank you. And thank you for those excellent strategies for implementing MRAMs. Now, before we get to our Q&A, I'd like to share a few SMART goals, which summarize today's discussion. These are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely action items. In fact, these are things you can start doing today educate and remind persons of reproductive potential about the risk and remind them repeatedly, engage in pregnancy prevention and planning, including a discussion of acceptable methods of contraception during mycophenolate treatment and introduction of alternatives to immunosuppressants with less potential for embryo fetal toxicity if pregnancy is desired. Report to the macrophenolate pregnancy registry any pregnancies that occur and encourage pregnant patients to participate in the, rep, in the registry. You saw that this information from the isotretinoin registry is really relevant and gives us hints to what goes wrong and how we can improve. So this information is, is really relevant um, to all of us to understand and design rems that, 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 that are most effective. The collection of evidence to support our understanding of rems failure and enhance prevention of prenatal exposures. And then read and share additional education resources. There's a brochure for healthcare providers and a brochure for patients that is accessible um, and that might be helpful to review. Okay, almost time for our Q&A session, but first let's revisit our three uh, questions and see how we do now. First, what percentage of infants born to mothers exposed to microphenolate during pregnancy are born with congenital abnormalities? 10 to 15, 20 to 25%, 45 to 50, more than 50%, I'm not sure. Right, pretty good. Um, We have made great, great strides here. So um, let's move on to our next question. Which of the following is a positive impact of uh, mycophenolate REMS today? Decreased mycophenolate initiation during pregnancy, improved contraception during therapy, decreased initiation during pregnancy and improved contraception uh, or reduced, uh, improved contraception. Yeah, 90% participation in the registry, or I'm not sure. All right, yes, you listened to me, thank you. Um, Also this question, we made great progress here. And then our last question, what percent of pregnancies are unplanned? Eighteen, twenty five, forty percent, or fifty four percent?
2: Great. All right. Um,
1: so I think with this, we have answered the questions that we had to as
0: part of the CME program and we can move on to our Q&A session. Um, to ask a question, please select the ask question tab below the slide review, viewer. But we do have already some questions coming in and I'd like to take some of those. There were two questions that dealt with what REMS is more, more successful and what about the isotretinoin REMS in particular and I'd like to um, uh, comment on that. So the isotretinoin REMS is indeed more successful; uh, prevents more pregnancies in comparison to the mycophenolate REMS. What is the key to that? Um, the, the isotretinoin REMS is much more um, uh, complicated and complex. It requires it requires a negative pregnancy test prior to dispensing of isotretinoin. Uh, physicians have to be part of a register of, a, of, a, of an online registry where pregnancy test information is logged. This information then is reviewed by pharmacies and there needs to be a log of a negative pregnancy test that is not older than seven days before a pharmacy can dispense either So it is more invasive, if you will, as a REMS, more complicated uh, to to roll out for sure, Um, but it is more successful. There was another question related to this that asked: Is there a social media used to uh, to remind women um, about the need for contraception? I'm not aware of any of those uh, activities. I think that's a fantastic idea, quite frankly. Um, there are some other, you know, really good reminders that that I think personally could be considered. For example, Europe has for some teratogenic drugs. Similar to our 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 cigarettes, where you have this big big sign on there that says it can kill you. Uh, for for teratogenic drugs in Europe, some have some teratogenic drugs have have a big big pregnant woman on on the package, and then there's a cross through that basically says you cannot use it. So it's in front of you and in your eyes all the si- all the time. This is not available here, so it is really a matter of us reminding reminding uh, women about the need for contraception. Um, but there are more questions here. Um, um, so there is one. What is this percent of today's transplant uh, patients that entail mycophenolate? Uh, Dr. Kim?
2: Yeah, I uh, previously mentioned uh we have a better data for the first year, probably 90% of uh all uh, solid organ transplant patients at least use mycophenolate uh, uh or the um, the delayed version of it, um, just because they are being the superior in terms of preventing rejections.
1: And I will add that in rheumatology, we use mycophenolate quite frequently as well. Large percentage of our lupus lupus
2: nephritis patients
1: are on mycophenolate. Um, we can use it in interstitial lung disease and other connective tissue diseases. So very commonly used within rheumatology as well. That's
0: a question for both of you and relates directly to this. Aside from azathioprine, are there any other alternatives and safer immunosuppressants to use instead of microphenolate?
2: So, um, as I previously mentioned, azathioprine is really commonly used instead of it. If a patient, because uh, patients are let usually on three drug regimen, or if it's not two, and uh, just replacing one with another usually um uh, doesn't necessarily happen. It's a actually a very uh, loaded question as uh, it's being an uh, inferior um, immunosuppressive agent. We When we change it to azathioprine, not everybody can actually uh, have a blessing to go ahead and then get pregnant after transplant. Um, so, If we do, they are usually at low immunogenic risk patients. So usually go to the azathioprine for some reason. If you cannot tolerate it and happen to be off prednisone, we can use prednisone as well. Otherwise, all the other agents are sort of um, just not clear, sort of a fetal um, risk is not ruled out. So you still use it at a risk like a mTOR inhib- inhibitors per se, when they did the, um, the embryo fetal risk test, it's still like a usable, but yet you don't necessarily want to use it because of side effects of uh, wound healing issues. So we, we do have some limited options in post-transplant.
1: I would say within rheumatology, uh, we frequently use MRN as well. It's very driven by our patient's disease, or level of disease activity, and what we're truly targeting um besides imran we can use colchicine for arthritis we can use plaquenil um patients who have a lot of nephritis and proteinuria we can use tacro we can use cyclosporin and ultimately prednisone um um we can use that medication during pregnancy um it acutely lowers inflammation of a lot of rheumatic diseases we have other drugs like vortuximab and venlista but there's just less information available for those but those are still tools that we can consider Um, when we want to move away from teratogenic medications. Here's a specific
0: question, Dr. Sintron. What is the prevalence of use of mycophenolate in rheumatologic
1: practice? That is a great question, and um, I think it would be a hard one to gauge because we just use mycophenolate off-label for so many of our rheumatic processes. Um, So not necessarily have a number, but definitely in practice it's commonly used for arthritis, for nephritis, um, for hematological manifestations in lupus, for interstitial lung disease, um, for scleroderma and skin thickening. There are an array of off-label um, reasons, and I think that's why it's kind of hard to just say a number, but definitely very commonly used in practice. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Dr. Dr. Kim, what percentage of pregnant patients suffer transplant rejection after mycophenolate is discontinued? Um, so that's the flip side, right?
2: Yes, yes. Um, actually, the pregnancy itself increased the risk of uh, rejection. Uh, you know, interestingly, when the father actually shares those donor antigens, um, then the risk of rejection goes up even higher. And since we're using a lower, you know, efficacy drug as well, it is actually quite common. I can only refer to actually post-cardiac transplant data because I'm being a cardiac transplant uh, pharmacist. But um, about 20% of rejection has been reported, which is actually considerable uh, given the fact that patient got probably pregnant after, you know, post uh, a year post-transplant, which is like not a. high-risk period for the rejections. And then, you know, the the maternal death has been reported. uh, Graft dysfunction has been reported. So it's quite risky to get pregnant after transplant. But, you know, to answer the question, more than 20 percent has been reported in uh, NTPR.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kim. And unfortunately, we are just about out of time. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Dr. Kim and Dr. Sintron, for their participation and expertise, and thank you, our audience, for participating. I hope this program will help you to better engage with patients via the microphenolate rems. There are still a few questions about rems that I would have loved to answer. Um, And you will, at the last slide, see all of our email addresses. So if you have more questions, um, you're very welcome to direct them directly to us. Hang on, I will need to move these slides away here. Okay, so here here are our email addresses for you to consider um, if you have more questions, and I'm always very happy to discuss REMS for sure. Um, So, well, um, please visit the Virtual Education Hub. This is a free resource uh, and education to educate healthcare professionals and patients. Um, There is a lot of really interesting CE programs that are uh, available. To receive CME credit for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation online. Then click on the Request Credit tab to complete the process and print your certificate. And thank you and a good night. Thanks for listening.